the rest of you, we're going to find in our continued study, can you believe we've got one more week of this study, Uh, next week we'll be looking at what Revelation says about the eternal kingdom of heaven, Uh, but this week we're going to look at a passage that's not so popular, Um, it's maybe well known, but not always well loved, Uh, the passage concerning the great white throne judgment. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. So let's stand as we open God's Word together. Revelation chapter 20. Let's go ahead and read verses 11 through 15. And then we'll see what a few other passages have to say about judgment. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, White represents uh, the the purity of the righteous judge who sits on it. And the one who, and one capital O in my Bible, hopefully your translators made that same observation. It says, the one seated on it, earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead and the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire, and anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And then the judgment. You know, First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Hebrews tells us uh, in chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Father, we pray that we would look at this passage this morning with clear and sober minds and hearts that will take very seriously a day that is coming as sure as Jesus came into this world, died and rose from the grave. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Lord, I pray that we would take this passage as a motivation to check and recheck the authenticity of our faith, to be forever grateful for your grace, but also to warn those who don't know you that there is a day we will all give an account. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, most of us remember where we were 15 years ago, right? Except maybe those who haven't graduated high school yet, perhaps. But but most of us remember where we were on this day 15 years ago when Islamic terrorists connected with the group Al-Qaeda, a name that we most of us didn't know or weren't very familiar with, but we would become very familiar with in the days ahead, when this group hijacked four planes and flew two of those planes into the Twin Towers in New York, flew another plane into the Pentagon, 
And thanks to the sacrificial and quick actions of people on a fourth plane after they had heard what had happened to the other planes and saw the fate that seemed to be awaiting them, were able to take the cockpit, but unfortunately not save the plane from crashing, and it landed, it crashed in a field in Stony Brook, Pennsylvania, or sorry, Stony Creek, Pennsylvania. Right at 3,000 people lost their lives in those attacks on 9-11. The Muslims, some would say extremists, others would say it's just part of the Muslim faith, who took over those planes, thought, thought for a moment, thought for perhaps a lifetime, that the very next thing that they would experience after dying what they would call a martyr's death and taking the innocent lives of so many others, they thought the very next experience they would have would be in a heaven where they would be rewarded for those actions. And there are still people today that don't realize that the war on terrorism is a spiritual battle. It is a theological battle. And I'm not suggesting that we become crusaders, but that we understand the nature of what's going on in the world today. If the Bible is not true, if there is no judgment, even if those terrorists did not experience what the Muslim today would call heaven, even if they did not experience eternal bliss, even if they were not rewarded with virgins as they entered the next life, if the Bible is not true, the very worst case scenario for them If there is no judgment, the very worst case scenario is that they entered into an eternal rest with no consequences. Can you imagine that that's what most philosophers, that's what most Americans are even coming to believe today, that we live this life and we die ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and there are no eternal consequences for the actions that we commit this side of eternity. That when we die, those terrorists and the greatest saints who have ever lived will experience the same rest and they will experience no more judgment than what you were probably experiencing about three or four o'clock this morning when you were sound asleep, except for those of you who are struggling with insomnia. But at three o'clock, four o'clock this morning, when you were perfectly content at rest and unconscious of the world around you, that that's what happens to everybody. Hebrews 9.27, I said a moment ago, says it is appointed unto man once to die, and then, and then, the judgment. Why does life matter? Why do the decisions that we make every day matter? Why do your relationships with friends and family, why do those relationships matter? There are eternal consequences to everything. Why does our behavior matter? Why do we discuss ethics or values at all if there are no eternal 
consequences if there's no judgment. In fact, we could go to extremes and say, why is any murder wrong? Why is there anything we would call sexual perversion? If there are no consequences to our actions, and I would say if there are no eternal consequences to our actions, then we might as well eat, drink, and be merry. Paul argues that in 1 Corinthians 15. If there's no resurrection, if Christ isn't real, if all of this is just a hoax and there's no judgment, then tomorrow we die, and so there's really nothing to even say that anything we do is right or wrong. It's okay to commit any type of theft, exploitation, treat others the way you want to. And by the way, why would anybody want to be a part of the thing called the local church? Why would anybody want to be a part of Christianity or any religion at all whatsoever? Why would we have to respond to Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible tells us it does matter. And the Bible teaches us, the same Bible that says, for God so loved the world that he sent his son, a verse that everybody likes to embrace, a, a doctrine, an attribute of God that everybody wants to embrace is the love of God. And I am so grateful for the love of God. I'm so grateful for the grace of God. But without being set against the backdrop of the holiness and the righteousness and the judgment of God, then grace and love mean absolutely nothing. It's because of God's righteousness and his holiness and his just judgment and the coming judgment that we'll all face that all of this makes sense. Now, not all of us will face this specific judgment, the great white throne judgment. But as appointed a man wants to die and then the judgment, we will all face the judgment. We'll see that inside and outside of this text. So I want to make three observations of the great white throne judgment this morning. And in these observations... I want you to pray that the Holy Spirit of God will reveal to you what it might be like for you on that day if you enter eternity the way that you're living your life right now. Making the decisions you're making, investing in the relationships you're investing in, living for what matters or what doesn't matter. What if you were to step into eternity at this very moment, 9-11-2016? Well, the first observation is that we notice, or maybe we don't notice, is the absence of believers at this judgment. The great white throne judgment I'm speaking of. The absence of believers. Where are the believers? In verse 11, we see that we're reading about a people that heaven can't help anymore. I saw a great white throne, the one seated on it, the earth and heaven, fled from his presence. And no place was found for them. When, when the righteous judge is judging on this day at this great white throne judgment, we read about all the things that had taken place before this. The tribulation that the church uh, had escaped, possibly. Many still believe that the church will go through that. Regardless, at this time, the church has been taken out. We've read about the devil himself being judged and cast into the lake of fire. We've seen that there was the millennial reign of Christ and his followers on the earth. And at the end of this thousand year reign, the, the devil was loosed for a little while before he was cast into the lake of fire. And now God is on his throne, ready to judge 
And heaven can't help those who haven't trusted in Christ. At this point, it is everlasting too late. Heaven and earth fade away at this point, and the focus is on the judge. Not only that, but the dead who had not been resurrected in Christ are brought before this judgment. I also saw verse 12 says, the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened. These were people who had no spiritual life, but they had a, a conscious awareness. They're standing before the throne. We also see in, in verse 13 that they were from the sea, and the sea often represents the Gentile nations, or the sea becomes a picture of all unbelieving people, groups around the world, including those in our own community. And so here's this picture, and in this picture of this great white throne judgment, in this vision that John's receiving, he does not have a vision that describes believers, that describes those who were made spiritually alive or who were resurrected in Christ. They are noticeably absent from this passage. And I want to encourage you, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Will there be judgment? Yes. We'll look at a couple of passages that explain that. But it will not be a judgment unto condemnation. Now, I remember when I was a kid, even after I had put my faith and trust in Christ, and I still didn't understand all of this, I think probably several times I got my uh, hands on one of those chick tracks. Now, thank God for chick tracks. A lot of people, who knows what a chick track is, right? Uh, for the guys, I'm not talking about girls, chick tracks. If you've ever read a track by chick, C-H-I-C, raise your hand. Have you ever read? Wow. I can't believe so few of you know what chick tracks are. Well, they were, tra they, they were uh, you probably know what they are, you just don't remember um, what they were called. But they were little booklets, little paper booklets that would share the gospel. And the one I remember in particular was one that would show a, a, a boy, and he was standing with an angel, and there was a giant movie screen like the old drive-in theaters. So you do remember drive-in theaters, right? <laughs> well, he's standing before this screen. And so I'm a boy back in the 70s looking at this chick track, and I'm thinking, this is the way it's going to unfold. And everything that he had ever done bad in his life was projected on that screen. And as a little boy, I thought of my secret sins and thoughts and anything that I probably thought that I might have gotten away with, or at least had said, God, only you know this, and I am so sorry, and I confess it to you, please forgive me, and, and, and I did my best to repent. I still thought there's coming a day when the movie of my life is going to be played for everybody to see, and when they see it, I'm going to be so embarrassed at my sins, and I'm going to feel so condemned. But Romans 8, 1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And by the way, if you had to sit and watch a movie of my life, it wouldn't be heaven for you. And if I had to sit and watch a movie of your life and all of your secret sins, it wouldn't be heaven for me. Imagine, if you will, that, that the, the, the blood of Jesus just begins to cover that screen and nothing can be seen anymore. 
That's what it means to be in Christ. His blood has justified us. It's just as if we had never sinned. And so this judgment of works, of, of sin, and, and unrighteous deeds is not a judgment that the church experiences. Now that does not mean that believers will not be judged. It's just not at this judgment. We will face a judgment nonetheless. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And it's not the great white throne judgment. There in, in the Greek, it uses the word bema or the bema seat. And the bema seat, there was actually one in Corinth and there was one in a lot of the ancient Greek cities where they had the ancient Olympics or the Isthmian games of that day. And so at that judgment seat, the, the judge of the athletic competitions would present what was known as the victor's crown. People would be judged on their performances and they would be awarded a victor's crown on that day that they stood at the judgment seat. And so Paul was telling the church at Corinth, when you get caught up in these sinful lifestyles, you are sacrificing rewards that will take place. He had built his argument in his first letter to Corinth. If you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll see what he kind of lays out as a standard for judgment for the church, for the righteous. On that day we would stand before the Bema seat. In chapter 3, beginning with verse 9, he says, for we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to God's grace that was given to me as a skilled master builder, I have laid a foundation and another builds on it. But each one must be careful how he builds because no one can lay any other foundation than, that, or than what has been laid, that is, Jesus Christ. Remember that phrase, only what's done for Christ will last? If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. So there's a, a purging of the works of believers here on that day that we stand before the Bema seat. Sometime after we die, sometime before this white throne judgment. It says the fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work, speaking to the church here, speaking to the body of Christ, if anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost. But he will be saved, yet it will be like an escape through fire. There are going to be people that have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ whose faith was genuine and authentic, but they have absolutely nothing to show for the glory of God. Nothing that they have invested into kingdom things by the way they live their life on this earth. Now we have to be really careful with a verse like this because there are many who will say, well, hey, just so I get in. I would say be very careful because in Paul's letter to Corinth in 2 Corinthians, in case anybody would abuse this doctrine, he would say, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away, all things become new. If the Spirit of God hasn't come to live in your life 
and start to make changes in your life, it is evidence that you've never truly put your faith and trust in Christ. You might have prayed a prayer. You might have decided to turn over a leaf. You might have embraced religion. But if there's no change, there's no Jesus. If there's no Jesus, there's no change. But even those who have been changed by the grace of God can become distracted by the things of this world. And we lay up treasures on earth rather than treasures in heaven. And on this day, this judgment day for the church before the Bama seat, those who have invested in heaven. See, heaven's not going to be the same for everyone. There will be various rewards by how we lived our lives. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 through 27, it says, In a race, all the runners run. This is a beautiful picture of those uh, Olympic games and, and, the, and the Bama seat and everything. He says, run in such a way as to get the prize. Don't just go through life, but go through life to be victorious for Christ. And Paul would say, I beat my body, I, I, I discipline my body, I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I wouldn't be disqualified from the prize. He wasn't saying, because I don't want to lose my salvation, he was saying, I don't want to enter heaven as one saved, as barely escaping the flames of fire. I don't want to say I was saved, but boy, I barely made it by the skin of my teeth. He wanted to make a difference in his world and lay up treasures in heaven. So we'll be judged by whether we lived our life for the glory of God. We'll be judged as Christians, as the church, for whether we sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And you say, yeah, but man, as long as there's no condemnation, I'm good, right? As long as there's no condemnation, I don't have to worry about sin in my life. So maybe I can serve God on the one hand, and, and, and I can serve sin another. But see, no man can serve two masters. But at least... It won't be made manifest. It will be made manifest by the loss of reward. So it could be that, first of all, we've got to be really careful again because the sin could be evidence. According to even 1 John, continual, continual habitual sin may be evidence that we haven't truly been saved, that we won't be a part of the Bama seat judgment at all. Or it could be evidence that we're going to be saved by fire. It, but here's how we begin to lose rewards. You say, well, you know, as long as I'm not going to be condemned for my sin, and we forget that that sin keeps us in bondage, renders us powerless. Here's one of the worst things about sin for a believer. It's one of the worst things about getting in the flesh. It's not just what the sin costs you and the consequences. It's what you are not doing for the kingdom of God when you are bound by sin. See, the devil himself knows if you are a child of the living God and you want to make a difference for the kingdom, if he can get a toehold in your life, if he can get a foothold, if he can get a stronghold, then he can keep you from making a difference for the kingdom of God. Render you powerless. Rob you of time. Rob you of reward for all eternity. See, there are a lot of college football games being played yesterday. If an MVP on one team was injured and out of the game... It did not mean that he put on the other team's uniform, but it could mean that he wasn't helping his team like he could have been. So if the, the devil can injure you with sin and keep you out of the game and keep you from impacting the lives of others, and I'm telling you, for the church, for brothers and sisters in Christ, I think the greatest effect of sin on your life is how powerless it renders you for the kingdom of God. 
robbed you of a testimony and the ability to make a difference. So there's a loss of reward because it's all burned up. You were seeking not the kingdom of God. There's an absence of believers at the great white throne judgment, but we have our judgment. It's where we're rewarded for those things that we've invested in eternity. Secondly, I want you to see not only the absence of believers, but the accounting of the books. What, what books are we talking about here in Revelation? It's different kinds of books. In verse 12, he uses the word in, in a plural form. He says, and the books were open. And then another book that he describes as the book of life. But what are these books? A number of scrolls seem to be available on this day. Well, according to John chapter 12 and verse 48, the Word of God is one of those books that was available. The very Word of God, there is a judge for the one, Jesus said this in John 12, 48, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn you or will judge them at the last day. So the Word of God is present. What did you do with the gospel? What did you do with the word of God that you received? So they'll be condemned by whether they believed and received the word of God or not. And then there's the record of sin. The record of sin. And so it says that according to their works, their actions, not works that they did for the kingdom, but their sinful works, verse 12, by what was written in the book. So there's a record of their sin. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said it was going to be worse for some cities than others because of their tolerance of sin. It was going to be worse for those cities. Just like there are levels of reward in heaven, there are degrees of punishment in hell. And he's saying there are those who had a knowledge, and there were some cities to whom Christ was revealed and they rejected. They had a greater knowledge of the gospel than perhaps other cities, and their judgment is going to be worse than even cities like Sodom. He says it's going to be worse for Capernaum there in Israel than it's going to be for Sodom on that day. Not only that, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and then you look down at verse 20, you can see that for false teachers, it's going to be worse. Some, some of the greatest eternal punishment is going to be poured out on those who distorted this book, rejected this book, or led many other people astray with false gospels. There are pulpits all across this nation and all around this world where they're putting a question mark on the Word of God. James chapter 3 says, not many of us should even want to be teachers, speaking of the book, because ours is the stricter judgment. And I believe what Peter is saying, they're going to be worse off in the end because not only did they not believe the message, they distorted it for others. So there's, a, there's a record of sin for those who haven't put their faith. Every sin. That movie screen that I described, I don't think it will be just like that. And I'm glad that there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But all of a sudden, for those who thought, well, I'm a pretty good guy, they're going to find out on that day. No, we're not. Oh, but Pastor Robbie, I know this fellow. He doesn't believe in Jesus, but he is a good man. I remember on one witnessing encounter where I asked a fellow this question. I said, 
How many times do you think you sin every day? He said, I'm a pretty good guy. I said, I'm talking about like bad thoughts, a lustful thought, an unrighteous anger, whatever it may be. How many times a day do you think you sin? He goes, well, everybody probably sins at least three times a day. I said, let's say that you have a really good year and you only sin three times a day every day that year. You don't have those 10 and 12 and 20 sin kind of days. Three times a day, every day for a year, Let's just round down to the nearest thousand. That's a thousand sins a year, right? I said, yeah. And I said, let's say you live to be 70 years old. You're going to stand before God and you're going to say, I'm a pretty good fella. I lived a pretty good life. Let me and my 70,000 sins into heaven. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a holy God. And if we enter heaven with one sin, it would consume us and destroy us. We need the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from all sin. And not only that, we need the Holy Spirit of God to bring you regeneration and give us a new nature because our problem isn't just that we sin, it's that we're born sinners. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We're born with a sin nature that has to be dealt with. That nature itself can't enter into the kingdom of God, the holy presence of a holy God. And then there's the book of life. Not only the books that show us the word of God and the books that show a record of our sins, but he says in verse 12, and another book, the book of life. We know this book is important. As a matter of fact, in chapter 21, verse 27, it says, nothing profane will enter into it. Speaking of this, this new heaven, Nothing profane will enter into it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those, who's, those written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, some try to draw a distinction between the Lamb's book of life and the book of life, and maybe one where all names are and those who reject Christ, their names are blotted out. Listen, I don't try to split hairs theologically here, but there is a book of life that if our name's not written in, saying that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then we will be rejected on this day. There is an accounting, an accounting of what we did with the Word of God, an accounting of our sin, an accounting of whether or not our name is written in the book of life. The book of life in some form is mentioned at least 14 times in the Bible. Uh, Paul addressed in Philippians fellow workers as those whose names were written in the book of life. So I don't try to distinguish necessarily here, but I know that a lot of us flirt with disaster when it comes with, with life sometimes and, and with playing games. You realize in the United States, um, last year there were over 2,000 collisions at railroad crossings. Over 2,000 collisions between vehicles, cars or trucks, and trains. What's amazing about that statistic is that 60% of them, and we're talking about, they, they still haven't tabulated all the numbers, but, but somewhere between two and 300 deaths. But, but over 60% of the time, all the warnings were in place. The railroad crossing lights were flashing. The, 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 the arms came down. But over 60% of the time, Someone knew this is not the time to cross the railroad track, and they took a risk. The other times, there may not have been a crossing bar. It may have been in a bad place. or Somebody 
may have just broken down or a truck may have gotten stuck. But 60% of the time, people knew the risk. They saw all the warnings and they still tried to make it. A lot of people are doing the same thing with their faith and with the faith when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ. They're kind of like, I see all the warnings, but I'm going to make it. I see all the warnings, but I'm going across. I believe everybody else has been fine. Everybody else is doing it. I'm going to make it. And on this day, on this day, nobody gets across except those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And So we see the books, and there is an accounting. And finally, we close with this last verse. There's an appointment to banishment, verse 15. Actually, go back and look at verse 14. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Speaking of all of those who had been in that whatever that holding place of separation from Christ is like until this day. Then he says, this is the second death. See, the math, it always adds up to three, folks. You are born twice and you die once. See, you're born physically and you're reborn spiritually and then you only have to face physical death, but you'll never face spiritual death. Or you're born once and die twice. If you're born physically but you're never born again, then there's not only physical death, there's an eternal conscious, if I could get us to understand that, there are people here that have been physically dead for a long time, so there goes this theory of annihilation. Well, you're just kind of consumed or you just died. There's a conscious spiritual awareness of this. And it says, anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. We'll be surprised at some whose names aren't written there. We'll be surprised at some whose names are written there. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, your lawbreakers. Are we willing to take that risk? Oh, but this is a religious crowd. They were serving God, right? They, were in they did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, I never knew you. Matthew 25, 46 says they will be banished to eternal punishment. In Matthew 13, in verse 50, it reminds us it will be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeping has to do with a place of great sadness, gnash, gnashing of teeth, a place of great anger. And so there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. Yesterday on one of the college football shows, they were talking about a team, I don't know, it may have been Georgia, I don't know, but they were talking about a team, and they said, by this point in the game, there was lots of gnashing of teeth. <laughs> I thought, man, that phrase comes right out of the passage I'm preaching tomorrow. It would be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 13, verse 50 says. The second death is the final sentence, sentence to eternal banishment, eternal punishment. From the kingdom of God into the kingdom of darkness. You say, well, I just believe God loves me and I thank God for his grace. And I just don't believe God would let anybody go through that. I just believe God is a loving God and God cares about people. I just don't see how a loving God could ever let that happen to anybody. Think, think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Praying, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. 
And I'm telling you, if this judgment were not real, if hell were not real, it would not have had to have been poured out on Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And the warnings would not be so clear in Scripture. It is real. He gave his life. Could you, could you imagine talking to the family of a soldier who gave his life for our country, fighting for freedom, fighting that we might enjoy the freedoms that we have in this nation today, fighting that, that we might not be under the oppression of terrorism or communism or whatever in the world is rising up against us at that time, and a soldier gives his life, and you're talking to his family, and you say, well, I'm glad he died for his country, but really, freedom's not that big a deal anyway. It's not like communism would have been that bad. It, it's not like terrorism would have been that. It's not like all those things. If, if, if our country had lost the attack, it's not like life would have been so bad after all. That would not only be a fallacious statement, it, it would be an insult to the one who gave his life for the freedom we enjoy. And so when we say, well, I don't have to accept Jesus Christ who gave his life on the cross for me because it's not like things are going to be that bad anyway. I'm okay without him, and I can enter eternity without him. No big deal. If hell isn't real, if this judgment isn't real, not only is that a fallacious statement with what we know of Scripture, if it isn't real, then it is a slam on the message of the gospel. It makes grace and the message of the cross cheap and meaningless. The good news is, the good news is for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And the good news includes the fact that this message is available for anybody. Would a loving God send people to hell? Listen, a loving God would lay down his very life so that we wouldn't have to go there. So that our names could be written in the Lamb's Book of Life forever. Next week, folks, we're going to look at what he has to say about this new heaven, and it is going to be a glorious picture. Glorious picture, but it is so glorious because it's set against the backdrop of the alternative. Would you pray with me?